Hey everybody, welcome back to the greatest podcast in American history. My name is Dylan Shearer, I'm your host. Uh, welcome to our second episode. Thanks everybody who turned in for the first one. Uh, now we're off. So today we're talking about the Industrial Revolution, one of my favorite periods in American history and what I think is one of the most important periods in American history, especially when discussing sort of why the U.S. looks the way it does today. I think this sort of time period is a big part, a big like root reason why what you know goes on today goes on. Um, so today we'll be talking, we'll doing a brief, broad overview of that, following up on our discussion on the Reconstruction period. So we'll be in sort of the same time period, starting in 1865, and then moving a little further along. Sort of, so we're discussing stuff that's going on concurrently with the Reconstruction, just if you want to keep a timeline in your head of that. On the podcast today, we'll be discussing a lot of different stuff, talking about Thomas Edison, talking about railroads, talking about petroleum, standard oil, some you know classic tycoon shenanigans, bribing of senators, all that sorts of stuff. So lots of interesting things ahead of us. So let's get going. So the Industrial Revolution, uh, this is the first in a pretty long sort of series talking all about the Industrial Revolution, its effects, and how people reacted to it. So what this podcast is going to cover is pretty much like a big, broad overview podcast of this. We're talking about the when, the what, the where, and the why of the Industrial Revolution. We're talking about a pretty specific context, right, the United States. So you got to delve into some of that stuff. We'll talk about some of the industries that developed during the Industrial Revolution, some of the key players behind those industries. We'll talk about some of the innovations, some of the inventions that happened during this time. We'll also talk about some new business and labor practices that went along with that. Some of them not so great. We're also going to talk about the development of a national market, right? Sort of the changes in how people bought stuff, how people sold stuff. All goes hand in hand with all this new technology that's being developed. So while we're doing that, throughout this whole thing, this podcast is going to answer and ask, maybe not answer, but definitely ask, a couple of big questions. One, how did the Industrial Revolution change life in the United States? Uh, you know, I've already mentioned that I think it's one of the biggest things to ever happen in the U.S., so we're going to delve into sort of what those changes looks like, look like and how they actually happen, right? So just checking out, you know, these big, big things and looking at them and sort of delving not too deep, but going into a little bit of detail on them. We'll talk about who the changes benefited, right? Always sort of with changes, especially in American history, you have to look at who those changes helped and then who they hurt, right? Uh, the Industrial Revolution definitely changed a lot of stuff and it definitely benefited a lot of people and also hurt a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And I think you still can see how those changes benefit and hurt people to this day. And then we'll look at, you know, some more of stuff like how these changes came to be, right? So why they actually happened the way they did. But before we get into all of that, I've got a little story for everybody about everyone's favorite inventor, Thomas Edison, one of the most famous Americans of the Industrial Revolution, especially for this time period. If you're a pop culture fan, you probably, you know, talked about the, the Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla sort of fight, all that type of stuff where Thomas Edison electrocuted that elephant to death to sort of try to prove that uh, Nikola Tesla's uh, electric, electrical current 
ideas were bad. That was obviously incredibly messed up what he did. Uh, and he was really wrong about it, but he came out on top, really. Uh, one of the most far more famous than Nikola Tesla ever was, and sort of far richer uh, as well. So Thomas Edison, born 1847, right? So just a few years before the Civil War. Uh, he died in 1931. Very prolific inventor. Uh, has over a thousand patents in his name. Uh, disputed over whether he invented all that stuff, but the patents are in his name. He was a polymath, right? So he worked in electricity, worked in math, chemistry, all those sorts of stuff, something you don't really see anymore today. He was the entrepreneur, right? That's sort of what he's actually really known for is his business sense, his business acumen. He founded, uh, as part of that, he founded General Electric, GE, which is still one of the, the biggest companies in the world today. Uh, and most importantly, he was very good at self-promotion, right? It's one of the reasons why he was able to, you know, beat out Nikola Tesla for sort of most famous inventor of the time, maybe best polymath. It's because he was so good at putting his name out there and making sure people knew who Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison was and what Thomas Edison did. So the big thing besides the light bulb that Thomas Edison is known for is the electrification of the United States. This was a big deal. One of the big outcomes of the Industrial Revolution was that the United States got electricity and in every home, you know, every state, the electric uh, outdoor lights we have now, all part of this electrification system. Uh, you know, there's emergency broadcast signals, all that stuff started with Thomas Edison. So Thomas Edison didn't invent electricity, right? Obviously, uh, he he's mostly known for inventing the light bulb, but he was he had a big hand and a big push, GE, General Electric had a big push in bringing electricity to cities. It wasn't taken up everywhere right away, right? So when Edison first, you know, introduced citywide electrical outputs, it wasn't like immediately New York had it, immediately Boston had it, immediately Chicago had it. That's not how it worked. Uh, it actually took a long time for people to, you know, get into it, to catch on to it. One, because it was sort of new and it seemed pretty dangerous at the time, but also because it required vast amounts of capital. Setting up all these grids, setting up all this machinery, all this stuff took a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And not every city had all this money. In fact, it wouldn't be, the US wouldn't be like fully electrified. People wouldn't have full access to electrical grids until the 20th century. It took a long time. The, the TVA, which will come up in a podcast way on down the line around the New Deal, really was like focused on still bringing electricity to parts of the country that didn't have it and hadn't had it since it was introduced. Mainly, electricity uh, started out as sort of a plaything for the rich and would only later become a sort of a net necessity for anybody living anywhere in the US. My argument actually about Thomas Edison is that the electricity thing was cool, the light bulb was cool, they're all important, but what Thomas Edison really should be known for, what his actual sort of genius was, was Menlo Park. That's what I consider to be his sort of greatest innovation. Menlo Park was basically a factory for inventions. Hired hundreds of scientists to work for him at this invention factory in Menlo Park. Uh, and it was largely the work of scientists at this Menlo Park who helped create the incandescent light bulb. Uh, Thomas Edison did help for it, did have several ideas that led to its invention. But guys like Francis Upton, Charles Catchler, John Crusey, Charles Dean, Wilson Howell, and Ludwig Bohm all were instrumental in inventing this light bulb. Edison didn't even create the first sort of light bulb patent, 
there. He just improved upon other designs that existed, you know, getting the right filaments, all that sort of stuff. And it was, but these guys who go unheralded actually really had a lot to do with the development of the light bulb. It wasn't just Thomas Edison. But because of his sort of self promotion skills, uh, the way Menlo Park was set up, all the credit goes to him. Well, that really isn't the case. And in my opinion, that is just sort of. It's a perfect sort of like, not even a metaphor, right? Just reality. It's a perfect way to showcase how the Industrial Revolution worked, right? It made some people very, very rich, very, very powerful, very, very famous, but then left a lot of other people outside, right? Outside the light, in the dark. The, a lot of the scientists who work at Menlo Park were paid very poorly. Lots of people who worked in all these new factories that were being built were paid very poorly, worked very hard, very dangerous jobs. And didn't get to see those financial like successes, the financial gains that people like Thomas Edison did. And obviously, sort of the mass availability of electricity changed the world. The light bulb changed the world in a lot of very good uh, ways, right? But in doing so, a lot of people were sort of left out in the dark, and they didn't get those benefits right away, if even ever. So. Story time over. Moving on to the Industrial Revolution. So I've been saying this word a lot. Uh, I haven't really placed this in time. So there's a big argument uh, in history, right, over how many Industrial Revolutions there are. Some people like to say there's four. I've heard five. This one, a lot of people call the what we're talking about, the second Industrial Revolution. Sort of the time period we're looking at here is 1865 to 1915. That's the the end of the Civil War to the beginning of World War One. So the thing to know of why this would be the second Industrial Revolution is that factories already existed and had existed in England for a while. They had existed in the United States as well. You get the, the Lowell Mills, all these New England sort of watered power mills, right? Factories had existed. And sort of the development of those factories is often called the first Industrial Revolution. But for our intensive purposes, I'm not going to keep calling it the Second Industrial Revolution, I'll just call it the Industrial Revolution. And this sort of really refers to as, a, as massive technological changes and a big buildup of these industries. So while textile factories and stuff had existed prior to the Civil War, they weren't on the scale of what we think of them as today, right? They weren't producing millions of garments, you know, thousands of them a day. They weren't supplying the whole United States. They were still pretty local. So we're going to be looking at this period of 1865 to 1915 when the Industrial Revolution actually really starts going. And so other stuff to know, you know, for classically, the England is seen as sort of the site of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in general. They had the first factories. Uh, there are There is evidence that there were sort of textile factories, pottery factories in India and China, sort of proto type factories, right? We might not, when we, you look at pictures of them, they might not seem like they were sort of what we know of as factories, but they were sort of mass producing, you know, textiles and pottery far before the English did. But sort of generally where England gets all the credit is because the, the English ideas were the ones that were spread around the world, largely through, you know, violent and colonial means, but those were the ones that were spread. So that's sort of the when. I've talked a little bit about the what, but the way I'm describing it for this podcast is that this Industrial Revolution that we're looking at is a period of massive economic and technological change. These changes then made huge, Amer like huge transformations in American culture, huge transformations in American politics, environment, 
and just the daily life of people, right? So this period of mass, mass, mass reorganization of what it looked like to live and be in the United States. And this period of Industrial Revolution helped transform sort of the, the base for the transformation of the U.S. from this basically second-rate backwater country that no one really cared about into one of the most important and one of the most powerful economies in the world. Basically the start of the modern United States. So, clearly, in my mind, this is just a big, big, big thing. Uh, we'll be looking about how it got so big. Where did the Industrial Revolution happen? So it happened all across the globe, right? This is sort of this isn't just a very local thing. This is a, a planet-wide thing, as they say. But we're going to be looking and focusing on how the Industrial Revolution happened in the United States. Uh, it does involve a lot of people from all over the world, but for our focus, it's going to be on the U.S. Its effects were spread around the world, but we'll be looking mostly at the U.S. sort of condition and the way it was here. So why did this happen in the U.S. the way it did, right? This is obviously a big, big question, unanswerable in a podcast, but there's generally sort of three basic reasons that people all generally agree on for why it happened. One is the Civil War. Two is government support. And three are technological and financial sort of changes, innovations, if you will, to use that word. So let's go through all three of these things in order. So the Civil War. Why did the Civil War help the Industrial Revolution happen? Well, just on its core basic level, the Union Army, to fight the Civil War, needed a lot of stuff. They needed lots of uniforms. They needed lots of guns. They needed lots of ammo. Uh, and how do you get all this stuff, right? It'd be pretty inconvenient if they had to rely on individuals to make all this stuff, right? If they had to go to some person living on a farm and be like, hey, I need, you know, a thousand, a thousand blue uniforms by tomorrow for this big battle, right? That's just not going to happen. They needed a big way to increase all this stuff. The, the mills that existed in New England couldn't handle all the requirements that the U.S. Army needed. So... What the, sort of the army did and what the union did was they encouraged increased investment in manufacturing. The government started offering these big, big contracts right, for military stuff, which encouraged factory owners to expand their operations to grow. And the government also sort of helped manufacturers um, grow their stuff. Right? They say, you know, we can promise we'll give you this amount of money to make this amount of stuff. Let's really encourage people manufacturing more. So along with this, this sort of support continued after the Civil War. The U.S. also started to, the U.S. government, the Union government, started to pass a number of what are called internal improvement projects, right? And this moves on to our second sort of reason is government support. Uh, for these factories to work and factories to make sense, they have to be able to get the stuff to different places, right? So if you're manufacturing things in Lowell, Massachusetts, you have to be able to get them quickly and timely to say Chicago or to say Virginia, right? Otherwise it wouldn't make sense to make all that stuff there. So the US started paying basically uh, using public funds to improve things like transportation across the country. One of those was the Transcontinental Railroad, connecting you know, the, the eastern half of the U.S. to the western half of the U.S. 
This allowed supplies, people, goods to travel much, much quicker from one side of the country to another. In fact, this travel is hugely, hugely important. Uh, in 1800s, it's sort of like it would take probably six weeks to get from New York to Chicago, right? That's a huge amount of time. And by 1930, by railroad, it would maybe take up to three days to get from New York to California. That's a huge, huge, huge switch, right? And vastly important and vastly necessary for this Industrial Revolution to really work. What else did the government do? They created a national tax and currency system. So they standardized currencies all across the United States and helped standardize national taxes. This helped pay for that increased investment in these improvement projects, and it also made it easier for people in one place to buy stuff in other places and not have to worry about all these weird exchange rates, all this weird sort of figuring out if money was good or not. And then finally, uh, they helped fund land-grant universities. So places like the University of Illinois, University of Michigan, you know, Montana, University of Montana, University of Montana, or sorry, Montana State University, right? These are all land-grant universities. Uh, people at these universities uh, were doing research on how sort of big technological changes, how they worked, using electricity, how to use it, chemistry, all that stuff. People like Edison would hire from these land-grant universities, making them sort of bastions of, of learning and helping sort of promote these changes and figure out how to make these changes better. And then our sort of third point of why this industrial revolution happened, there's technological sort of breakthroughs and financial innovations, and these sort of go hand in hand. So some of the big things that helped the industrial revolution really get going were advances like steam engines and eventually internal combustion engines. These allowed for the faster production of goods, right? So you see factories using not only electricity, but internal combustion to make stuff faster and faster. And it allowed for quicker travel. Trains, uh, internal combustions, you know, provided much more power than, say, a coal or a steam powered, or sorry, a steam or like a wood fired, you know, powered engine. Internal combustion engines are great. Then you also get things like refrigerated rail cars, uh, which allows ac people access to a wider variety of foods, especially meat. Uh, this wide, this sort of cheaper and more accessible uh, availability of meat sort of increased uh, the number of calories people had and allowed them to, to work longer and harder, basically. Uh, interestingly enough, the first refrigerated rail cars were actually refrigerated. People would just take giant chunks of ice from the Great Lakes uh, and put fans over them, and the fans would just blow the cold air, and people like fanning it uh, to keep stuff Cold. So very low-tech, but still very important. And then these financial innovations. So you get the introductions of syndicates, where a lot of people come together sort of to pool their resources, right? A lot of different companies under one banner. Uh, you get the creation of this sort of white-collar manager class comes up during this time. There's a great book by Michael Zakim about it called Accounting uh, for Capitalism, The World the Clerk Made, right? So people whose job basically is to just oversee other workers. That's really a new sort of form of employment. Uh, they created this. People who had some extra sort of available cash they could spend on all these new goods, which hadn't really existed before. And then you get an increased use of stock. And this will come up later. Uh, there's lots of sort of 
financial, you know, malfeasance going on with this stock, but the introduction of these new stock markets allows for increased, you know, financialization of industry, right? So more people can put more money into industry and potentially make more money helping fund these new ventures. So what did all of this change? We talked a lot about sort of what new stuff happened, what new developments, what new breakthroughs happened, but how did this stuff change people's lives? A couple of ways. One, cities begin to grow tremendously. This period of time, 1865 to 1915, you see the massive, massive, massive growth of cities, especially in the north. We'll talk about that on a later podcast, get into more specifics about that. But just know that places like Chicago, places like New York, they weren't always huge. During this time, they got really, really big. Part of the reason for that is that people started moving away from their farms away from farming and into the cities to work in these new factories. These factories were considered very good jobs, high paying, and people wanted those jobs. Farming is hard. If I could they live an easier life, right, a, a better life in the city, so they went for these jobs. You also get economy, the U.S. economy began moving towards large producers of goods. The, uh, for sort of all of its period until the Civil War, the U.S., Economy even focused on small individual producers. Farmers and even small manufacturers were sort of the big, big economic driver of the United States. After the Civil War, that was no longer the case. It's now these big syndicates, these big groups that are manufacturing lots of stuff all across the U.S. They become the primary economic driver. Uh, and this is all sort of known as, in a lot of cases, the end of island communities in the United States. So sort of the idea goes is that people have been living in their own islands, right? They maybe, you know, at most went uh, 50, 100 miles outside of where they were born, and that was really it. They knew those people, that's what they considered themselves, right? They were maybe called themselves a Virginian, maybe called themselves a Tennessean, but they probably didn't think of themselves as being American. That wasn't really a thing. But with the Industrial Revolution, you now get people buying the same food wearing the same clothes, all working in these big cities and leaving their homes, right? Going from their, their maybe their family farm into the city, leaving their family behind. So now they start seeing themselves as Americans. They started seeing themselves as part of a bigger country, sort of part of a larger whole because of all that. That's a really big cultural shift. Uh, it sort of creates a more, in some, on some level, creates a more cohesive United States. There are problems with this, of course, when you get you know farmers saying, oh, this person is an American, or this person is an American, even if someone has lived here for that long, but you sort of see the end of this island community. So what are some of these big industries we were talking about? We're talking a lot about factories and how factories have development and how you know industry is getting more and more bigger. Well, there's sort of three main ones I want to talk about here. Uh, these are sort of the, the big classic ones you get when you think of the Industrial Revolution, right? If you know that steampunk stuff, you'll probably be familiar with this. But the three major sort of industries that drove really this boom of this early Industrial Revolution are railroads, steel, and petroleum or oil. These are three huge, huge, huge industries where a lot of stuff was being made and a lot of money was being made by a few people. 
Well, the first one are railroads. Uh, and railroads have a, a crazy, crazy, crazy wild history in the United States. By So at, starting uh, by the end of sort of this period we're looking at, 1915, there were 250,000 miles of track across the U.S. So a quarter of a million miles of railroad track in the U.S. There's actually a lot of uh, historians who argue that the U.S. overdeveloped its rail network, right? That we actually had too many rails, too many redundant rails. Despite this redundancy, which came a little later, at uh, the beginning, people like Leland Stanford made massive fortunes off building and sort of funding the building of these railroads. Uh, Leland Stanford, and you'll hear sort of very familiar names in this section, is the guy who founded Stanford, largely off the money from these rail networks that he built. Uh, so while Leland Stanford funded this and got the funding to build these railroads, the people who actually built these railroads, uh, and we'll talk about them more in a couple podcasts later, lived in poverty. They lived, worked, it was very, very dangerous work, very hard work, very deadly work to build these railroads. And the people who actually built them uh, were, did not make a lot of money, and many people died and got injured building these railroads. It is very, very, very hard work, often done by people with sort of the least access to political power, the least access to economic power in the United States. We'll go more into depth in a couple of podcasts later, but I do just want to tell one story. Uh, out west, a lot of the transcontinental railroad was built by uh, Chinese immigrants, um, who came here for jobs. They were very, very, very poorly paid. And there was sort of almost no workplace safety measures, right? So you hear stories of these workers, you know, if they had to build a, a track around a mountain, over a mountain, through a mountain, well, what happens sometimes is they have to drill holes in the side of a mountain to help blow it up. So what this looked like is that there would be two or three workers on top and they would tie a rope around someone's, you know, waist, around their shoulders, lower them down the side of the mountain, have that person dangling on the side of the mountain just being held up by a rope, have them drill holes into the side of a mountain, uh, light dynamite, so live dynamite, stuff it in those holes, and then they would haul that person, carry that person, all the way back up the side, hopefully before the dynamite exploded. Obviously that didn't always happen, uh, and even if they were, sort of did make it out, it was still wildly, wildly unsafe, right? And they got paid almost nothing for it. And that's really how these railroads were built in the United States. The other big industry is steel. Uh, so the steel industry, uh, these went, this went hand in hand with the railroad industry, as we'll see all sort of three of these industries created what's called a virtuous cycle. They all really worked with each other. Improvements in steel making production, namely the Bessemer process, which allowed for the cheaper uh, and quicker mass production of steel, really grew uh, the steel industry in the United States. One of the biggest benefactors of this growth was Andrew Carnegie, who, who implemented the Bessemer process, uh, and in doing so, got himself, was able to control about 25% of steel production in the United States by 1900, making him one of the richest people in the world, if not in history. In doing so, he crushed union power, hired untrained workers, uh, maybe we'll work really, really long days for very low wages uh, to lower his costs even more. He was a big proponent of vertical integration, one of these new sort of processes that was being developed during this time, where basically he's like, I'm going to just control all parts of the steel production process, from owning the coal, field, coal fields to owning the railroads that brought the coal to the factories 
and so on and so forth. He was able to make a lot of money off of this. And it also allowed for the you know increased production of railroads, right? They steel ties are much stronger, much less prone to warping than iron rail ties. And so all this steel production really allowed the U.S. economy to grow. And then finally is the petroleum industry. So I think you can see where this is going. Uh, petroleum and the combustion engine allowed for trains to move faster. Uh, they allowed for the faster production of steel. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, actually, petroleum was really seen uh, as a byproduct. It was mostly used as just a machine lubricant, a light source, right? People would put it in their, their lamps. Uh, and so it wasn't until the invention of the combustion engine that petroleum became sort of the important resource that it is today and the huge industry that it was during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, once the combustion engine was developed, we still we petroleum became more important, but it wasn't really until 1859 that massive amounts of oil were discovered in Pennsylvania that triggered an oil boom and allowed people to get some people to get really rich. The person to know here is John D. Rockefeller. I'm sure you know you've heard this name before. How can you not? Uh, Rockefeller Center, all that sort of stuff. Uh, he controlled almost all production of oil in the United States through his company Standard Oil. Became massively, massively, massively rich, basically because he had a monopoly. So I've mentioned a couple things, right? We have these big three industries. We have railroads, we have steel, we have petroleum. These aren't the only things being developed during the Industrial Revolution. There are, you know, textile manufacturing increases, food manufacturing increases, you know, toys, all this sorts of stuff, new things are developed and begin to be made in factories. And along with all these new industries and these new financial breakthroughs, uh, these new technological breakthroughs, come some new business practices, a lot of them pretty harmful. The first one we're going to talk about, which I just mentioned, are monopolies. So people like John D. Rockefeller and his company Standard Oil were able to basically control all oil production in the United States. That's really bad for the economy in general. Why? One, it just allows them to set prices and control the market without any oversight, right? So the U.S. is a capitalist country. One of the sort of the big foundation, foundational principles of capitalism is that competition is necessary, right? People have to be able to compete to give the best price. Uh, and that's how capitalism works, right? That's what keeps prices from going way too high and from allowing people to afford stuff is competition. What monopolies do is they get rid of competition, right? Because Rockefeller controlled 90% of all oil in the U.S., when he would needed oil, they had to go to Rockefeller, and Rockefeller could say, you are paying me this amount of money for oil. I don't care what it's for. I don't care how you know expensive it is. This is what you're paying me. It made him a lot of money, but it really slowed down other stuff, right? Because he wanted to spend so much money on oil, they couldn't spend money on other things, like developing new products, paying their workers, all this other stuff. So monopolies were really bad for competition. And you people were always trying to get monopolies. There weren't a lot of rules against them at this point. There weren't a lot of, you know, business laws, basically business regulations that prevented these monopolies from happening. So you have people like Rockefeller, you have people like Carnegie who have these monopolies trying to control the market to make as much money as they can. Another thing that came along with the Industrial Revolution is sort of stock price manipulation, stock manipulation, all this sort of uh, tomfoolery going on 
which could be very, very harmful to people. Uh, There was almost no laws around sort of stock purchasing and advertising. You could purchase stock on credit. You could advertise, oh, this stock will go up by 200%. Be sure you buy it now. Don't miss out on this this sort of deal, right? All kinds of shady, shady business practices. People got stuck with stock that was worthless all the time. People got stuck with stock for companies that didn't exist. One really good example of this, uh, and a guy who actually eventually got screwed over, is what's called Vanderbilt and the Erie Railroad War. So uh, this happened in 1868. The state of New York was funding a new railroad, the Erie Railroad. They wanted to build this. And how a lot of railroads were built during this time was that the state took public land and gave public funds, so public taxpayer money, to private financial interests to build railroads on this public land. And this people got a, you got a lot of land for this. Usually, they, you know, they developed the line. They said this railroad will go from here to here. It'll take this path. And the person who you know won the contract to build it would get you know 100 miles of land on 100 acres of land on either side of the railroad tracks. That's far more than a railroad needs. So people would either develop this land or they would sell it for massive amounts of profit. Uh, so it was a really, really, people wanted to be able to build these railroads, right? So this Erie Railroad uh, was, there was two main people trying to buy it. One was Vanderbilt, uh, you know, the guy who the college is named for. And there was Jay Gould. Jay Gould was working with uh, James Fisk and this guy named Daniel Drew to try to get this contract. So the, gov- the, you know, the New York government had to vote on who would get this contract. And so what Vanderbilt and Gould did to try to win these votes was they literally just bribed people. They gave them offers of stock in their companies. Uh, they gave them, you know, they would issue this fraudulent stock. They, Gould personally, at one point went to Albany uh, with a satchel containing $500,000 in greenbacks and spread them around the Senate. Uh, one senator, this was discovered in a later you know, investigation of what had happened, took $75,000 from Vanderbilt and $100,000 from Gould and kept both sums and then ended up voting for Gould because he got more money from him. So all this is going on. Gould had issued some stock in his railroad before he had even got it. Uh, Vanderbilt had also issued uh, stock in the company before he even got it. And Jay Gould eventually won his won the right to build this railroad, right? So got a lot of money off of this, screwing out uh, Vanderbilt uh, of all this money. So the sort of eerie railroad war is a huge thing. And there's lots of stock price you know, manipulation going on. The Daniel Drew, this guy who had working with Fisk and Gould, got sort of scammed out of all the money he had invested in this railroad because Gould and Fisk gave him basically watered down worthless stock. Drew ended up actually dying penniless because of this. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Eventually, there would be laws that would be passed to make this sort of illegal, but not for a pretty long time. The other big sort of massive ramification that we're definitely still dealing with today is all the environmental damage the Industrial Revolution did. Uh, There was absolutely no environmental controls over these uh, new manufacturers that were going up. You see massive, massive, massive amounts of water and air pollution. The the Homestead Factory, which we'll talk about in a couple podcasts later, sort of the water of the Monongahela, which is the river that goes by it, is just awful. Workers complained about constant headaches. Basically, they were being poisoned 
by the work they were doing. All this oil drilling destroyed entire ecosystems. It ruined entire sort of, you know, areas of land, created massive flooding sometime, poisoned the water, literally poisoned the water. Uh, and nothing was really being done about it. Eventually, in the late 1900, uh, later 1800s, early 1900s, some of the conservationists would begin to fight back against this. One of the big ways they would do that was through creating the National Park System. But the EPA in the United States wouldn't be created until after World War II, much, much after, under Nixon. So there's lots and lots of environmental damage coming out of the Industrial Revolution, something we're living with today. So the last thing I want to talk about on this podcast is sort of this new national market that was created during this time. So mainly we've talked about sort of the big industrial things that have changed, the big manufacturing processes. But that wasn't the only thing being developed during this time. There's also new companies who are dedicated to selling to individuals. It's not just people making stuff for other businesses, making stuff for the government. There's people now making stuff for individuals. You get people manufacturing cookies like Nabisco, the National Biscuit Company. That's what that stands for. You get Sears and Roebuck who are creating clothes, manufacturing clothes, not, and not just clothes, right? Manufacturing kitchen equipment, manufacturing all sorts of farm equipment for people all across the country. So you get this new national market that develops. Where previously people had bought stuff, you know, if you needed a new shirt, you'd probably make it yourself. Or maybe there was a tailor in your town who could help you mend a shirt for a, maybe a small fee or a basket of food or whatever. That goes away. Now you have people in, say, Kansas, you have people in Chicago, you have people in Maine, all buying the same stuff uh, from these national companies, right? Someone can wear a pair of Levi's, where previously, you know, if you wanted jeans, uh, you would have had to gotten from a local person who made jeans. Or if you wanted a new barrel, you have to either make it yourself or get it from the local barrel, the local cooper. Now you could buy it from Sears Roebuck. So you get these first national brands. And to go along with that, to sort of convince people to buy this new machine-made stuff, comes national advertising campaigns. So you really get the development of the first modern advertising going on at this time. People didn't immediately accept all this new machine-made stuff. Uh, they had to be advertised and marketed to. We talked about uh, you know meat being transported in refrigerated cars. People were really, really suspicious of this meat. They wanted their fresh meat from their local butcher that they've been going to for the last couple decades. Until people started advertising uh, this meat, selling this meat, doing you know taste tests, all this sort of stuff across the country to help sell this meat. The same thing was done for Sears, for clothes, all these new companies had to do advertising campaigns. Uh, and so out of this, you get new supermarket chains, uh, that's, you get more you know, store chains, Woolworths, all that sort of stuff. You get department stores for the first time, Macy's, all these sorts of things. And you also get mail order catalogs. Mail order catalogs are actually hugely influential. They allow people living in you know, Davenport, Iowa, Kelowna, Iowa, to buy stuff via the rail from places like Chicago or Sears. Sears would send out these massive, massive catalogs of everything they sold. People would get this catalog sent to them through the mail, through the train. They would mark what they wanted, include payment for whatever they marked, and then send it back over the train, and then in a couple of weeks, that stuff would come right to them. So there's this huge transformation in the way people bought stuff, uh, this new national market. 
So one of the, those biggest changes, right? I talked about the end of these island communities. A big part of that was these national markets. People now felt more sort of familiarity with someone who they might have never meet, met, but they knew was probably buying the same stuff that they were. So the Industrial Revolution, that's sort of this big, broad overview of it. In the next couple of podcasts, we'll go into looking at the Industrial Revolution in the north, Industrial Revolution in the south, out west, and then some people's reactions to the Industrial Revolution, right? Largely, we've talked about people who got really rich in this podcast episode. Later, we'll be talking about how people fought back against the Industrial Revolution, how they wanted their share from the revolution. So just some conclusion, conclusionary points here, some conclusions. One, the Industrial Revolution affected everyone in the United States. No one was not affected by this, no matter how remote you were. Uh, I argue that this really is the foundation of the modern United States, this Industrial Revolution, definitely the economic foundation of what we know now. Uh, and as I said, over the next couple podcasts, we'll be looking at how some more specifics, specifics on those changes, and especially about how not everyone was a big fan of the Industrial Revolution. All right, that is today's episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, please, I love your feedback. Thanks for listening. Please tell your friends about this. Uh, tell everyone you know about this great podcast and have a great rest of your day.